0: We're going to read, we're still in the resurrection narratives of the New Testament, so today we're in John chapter 21, and we're going to read there verses 1 to 23, I think. Yes, 1 to 23, and I think, yes, the miracle of technology up there on the screens. If you want to follow in a printed Bible, there are some you can borrow on the tables either side of the platform. Let's hear God's Word. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.' None of the disciples dared ask him, "'Who are you?' They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish." This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. Do you know that I love you? Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want Him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word to us. And so, according to John, this third resurrection appearance… Of course, Luke tells us about the Emmaus Road, which we looked at last week. Matthew tells us about Jesus taking them out to the mountain. And so we kind of have to hold all the Gospels together to get the, 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 the full set, so to speak. But in terms of John's interest, this was number three. The first time, of course, was the evening on the first day of the week, where they were all gathered there for fear of the Jews with the doors locked, and Jesus came and appeared amongst them and proved to them that He was alive. And, and Thomas wasn't there, and refused to believe that Jesus had been there. And we've not looked at it this year, but in past years just reflected on the, the dynamics of what that week must have been like for those disciples in his relationship with Thomas, certain on the one hand that they would not surely all conspire to wear to play some cruel and wicked joke on him, But on the other hand, no doubt confused and bewildered as to why Jesus would choose a point when he, Thomas, was not present to reveal himself to everybody else. A week's a long time. And so here now it's the third time, and some of them are back in Galilee. It tells us quite clearly it wasn't all of them, and it tells us exactly which ones were there. We have a list of names, although only five of the seven are named. Simon Peter, Thomas the twin. I'm always curious about the fact, was Thomas's twin? Was he a believer as well? Why did Thomas get called to be a disciple and not his twin? I, I say that as a twin, in defense of twins. But I also say that quite glad that, you know, Jesus didn't just lump them together, which is what people usually do with twins. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee. I love the little details sometimes, I never actually picked up that Nathanael was from the place where Jesus performed His first miracle, and that actually Cana in Galilee was quite close to Nazareth. So it's not at all inconceivable that of all the places someone might turn their nose up at, it it would be the next town along the road. Because it was Nathanael that said on learning that Jesus was from Nazareth, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Which you understand if you've got a small town 10 or 5 miles down the road that is worse than you. Because every small town has a town to look down on, right? Every community has someone more than them that they can look down on. There's somewhere slightly better than you, and there's somewhere slightly worse than you. We're told that the Sons of Zebedee were there, so James and John. So, Peter, James, and John, this triumvirate, the three friends that were Jesus' closest disciples. And then two other unnamed disciples have been conjecturing who the other two might be. And just leading me into asking, why are they here? Luke tells us that Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem until you've received the gift which my Father is going to send you. What are they doing in Galilee? But of course, the angels said at the resurrection appearances, He's gone ahead of you into Galilee. Mysteries, lots of mysteries around the resurrection narratives. And I wonder if the two others might, and this is just my theory, I have absolutely zero evidence for this statement whatsoever, but I wonder if the other two might have been Philip and Andrew. Because Philip and Simon Peter, well, Simon Peter and Andrew were brothers, and they came from Bethsaida. So did Philip. Bethsaida was probably a fishing town. And so if this was a fishing mission, if this was a lad's fishing trip, to provide for their families in the interim because they didn't know what was next, then it might make sense if Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and perhaps co-owner of the boat and the business had gone back to Galilee with them to try and set some affairs in order, who knows? And if Philip came from Bethsaida as long as as well as Peter and Andrew, then perhaps there was a, you know, they'd been at school together. It was that kind of thing? I don't know. I could be entirely wrong. It might have been Simon the Zealot and Matthew, for all I know. Where frustratingly told so little about the fact then that they were there and that only seven of the eleven were there. And lakes of ink have flowed in trying to understand and unpack the psychology of Simon Peter when he announced those words, I'm going out to fish. Some recognize in it the weary defeat of a man who's given up on himself because of his failure, a man who no longer sees himself as a leader, a man who no longer sees himself as uh, fit to be the one on whom Jesus would build his church. Some see in this decision to go out to fish just the uh, impetuosity of a man of action who was getting fed up with all this sitting around and wanted just to be doing something. And maybe there was just a purely pragmatic aspect to it. Peter, we know, was married. He had a mother-in-law. They had wives and families and people to support. The ministry of Jesus had been funded out of the givings of of. Uh, of of the community, all we really know is that Luke chapter 8 tells us that there were some women with rich… some rich women with, with uh, good connections who funded the ministry. And so, it may well be that in Simon Peter's words, we can recognize a, a weariness or a defeatism, a giving up on, a going back to the safe place of that which we know, because sometimes that's what we do. You know, sometimes we may have had an experience, a calling up into something, or a promise to move forward into something. We've got a, a vision of what it means to respond to a calling to serve Jesus. But then perhaps somewhere along the way, we've, we've settled. Or perhaps lost the certainty or the conviction, and retreated to that which we know. Because the temptation of the life that we knew or, kn- or know before can sometimes be overwhelming. You know, Jesus calls us up and out and on. He calls us to take the risk of believing in Him and following Him. He calls us in 2018 in Glasgow, or wherever you're from, to put your life into the hands of an unseen Jesus whom you've never met in the flesh. He calls you to entrust the direction of your life, your decisions, your finances, perhaps even your mission or your ministry or your work or your calling. He invites you to entrust all of that to Him. And you know, sometimes the road of discipleship can look a little scary and risky. And it's easier to retreat to what I know and what I can do or what I've done before. And it may be less than the best, but it's slightly safer because I know how this works. Who knows what was in Peter's head or heart? Certainly, his ability to be a leader was never compromised, because at his instigation, all the other six upped and said, we'll go with you. And they went out, and just as it had been at the beginning, when Luke tells the story, the other story, the bookend story of this incident in Luke chapter 5, when at the beginning of Jesus' ministry… Jesus, once on the shores of Galilee, asked to borrow Peter's boat, even after they'd spent a night fishing and catching nothing, and put out a little from the shore to put some distance between himself and this crowd pressing in, in order that he could teach them from the water. And it was following that period of of teaching that he then told Peter to put out into deeper water and let down his nets for a catch, and Peter protested, because he knew the water, and he knew fishing, and he was exhausted. And he said, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. And yet, nonetheless, at Jesus' behest, they did what he said, and the nets were so full that they began to break. And James and John came in the other boat, and between them they managed to haul this gargantuan catch ashore, uh, onto the boats. And Jesus' reaction, sorry, Peter's reaction there at that point was a reaction that that tells you something about His character and tells you something probably about your own. Because Jesus just blessed this man with an enormous catch of fish that any fisherman that would would be legendary (laughs) in the annals of Galilean fishing, this would be a legendary moment, similar to the guy standing in the black and white photograph with a massive fish or up here or whatever it is that they do. And uh, Peter's reaction in that moment to Jesus is an entirely understandable one when God comes near and tries to bless you. And Peter said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Because that can be a reaction too to the Father who wants to bless us and do good to us. As lovely and as exciting and as beautiful a thing as it might seem to hear of the Father who loves you and wants to do good for you and to you, So often our reaction is, if you knew what I was really like, you wouldn't come anywhere near me. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And the outrageous grace of God in Jesus blessed Peter with an enormous catch, and Jesus refused to go away from him. And here, at the other bookend of the same kind of narrative, we find Peter— Who we understand has a little unfinished business, and every reason all over again why he might want to say to the Lord, Go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. And here comes Jesus again in pursuit of this sinful man, pouring out a blessing of abundant grace, which, strictly speaking, we might argue, Peter does not deserve. So, I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I defy anyone else to say that they know with certainty whether going fishing was sinful or not. Was it just expedient and pragmatic because there were hungry mouths to feed? Was it just the holding pattern until they got their next set of instructions? Or can we genuinely hear the seeds of self-loathing or defeat or a backward step to a safe and familiar life, even if it wasn't what they'd been called away from. But Jesus comes, as He called them then, to leave their nets and follow Him, and for three years that's precisely what they did, and so Jesus comes to renew His call. And sometimes we need to hear the call anew of Jesus on our lives saying, yes, I called you then, but do you know what? I'm still interested in calling you today. Because there may be all sorts of reasons and arguments that we can put up that say to the Lord, well, here's why I knew it was a bad idea back then, because if you really knew what I was like, and yet again He comes, and again He calls. And again, gently, as with Peter here, he challenges him, without directly challenging him. There's no direct mention of a denial, no hint of a rooster crowing, no little nuanced reference to that night. Yet nonetheless, it's there. It's there to be seen and to be heard. And so this echo miracle of the beginning of their calling comes again, reminding them of the calling they received and calling them afresh in this new season, this new chapter, with the risen Jesus, calling them again to go and to serve and to do in His strength and in His power and in His love. And so again, the disciples go fishing and catch nothing, and they fish all night until the stranger's voice comes to them from the shore, telling them to cast their nets and an impossible quantity of fish. 153. Leap into the nets, and then they remember, and they have one of those connection moments where John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, recognizes in the blessing. It seems before Peter had that it's the Lord. And so they have another of their running battles. Resurrection Sunday, it was, it was John that outran Peter. <laughs> but here, whilst it was John that recognized Jesus first, it was Peter that got his clothes on and brought into the water… And the others came towing their net full of fish, and when they landed, they saw there a fire already lit, with fish already caught, or summoned, (laughs) and bread already already aired. I love the fact that in the Gospels, there are only three foodstuffs that Jesus multiplies spectacularly—bread, wine, and fish (laughs) Two feeding miracles with bread and fish. A ridiculous amount of wine at a wedding in Cana. Two colossal catches of fish that ought not to have been. Bread, wine, and fish. Three of the most powerful and enduring symbols of Jesus. Bread and wine, of course, we break and share and remember Jesus' death for us in communion. And from the earliest years... The fish became the symbol of the Christian. Ichthus. Ichthus. Jesus Christus Theu Huios Soter. Yes, which means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. There are people with brains in front of me. I have to make sure I get it right. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, the acronym for a Greek word for a fish. And so Jesus, again, speaking in signs and symbols, with an abundance of fish and bread already prepared, has prepared something simple like a fellowship meal. He didn't fish in their presence, of course, in that upper room on the first of His appearances, but this is the first meal they shared since that upper room, when it was lamb, not fish, that was on the menu at the Passover meal. I wonder what the sign reminded them of. If it was pragmatism that had driven them out to fish, did they need a reminder that Jesus can meet all of your needs? If it was the concern to do the right thing by their families and make sure that the business would be taking over, perhaps with apprentices and others in their absence— Was it just them behaving responsibly and Jesus' reminder to them that He was more than able to provide for their needs and the needs of those He had called them from? Was this a reminder of that time when Jesus had called them to leave their nets behind and follow Him? And that He'd called them out of something in order to enter into something and you may not, and I suspect none of you, maybe one, will be fishermen and have boats and nets to be called from, but it really doesn't matter. Because when we say or said yes to Jesus, He called us out of something or out of things, called us out of ways of living or behaving, reacting or responding. Perhaps he called you out of a particular career or occupation or direction that your life was taking to go in this other one instead. I don't know. It's your story, not mine. But he's called you out to pursue his way and to leave behind. And he gives them these fish as a sign of the impossible being made possible because every fisherman knows that you don't just cast your nets on the other side after a night of fruitless fishing and land hundred and fifty-three in a single catch? And did He make the connection between that time at the beginning when He had called them into this three-year ministry? And did they realize that this was now the cusp of their new calling, the transition from disciple to apostle, from pupil to sent one. And did this miracle help them to recognize and identify Jesus, not because they could see or recognize Him visually or facially. What I find fascinating is that John had no problem from the distance of a boat hearing the voice of the Lord and saying emphatically, "'It is the Lord!' And yet, as they sat around the campfire in close proximity with Jesus, eating, none of them dared ask Him, who are you? <laughs> Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? I would have thought the other way around. The stranger on the shore from a distance in the morning would be less evident. The one with whom you're up close and personal around the campfire is surely the one that you recognize. And so the resurrection Jesus looked different. They knew it was him, but he didn't look the same, in the same way as the man that met the two disciples on the Emmaus road was unrecognizable mysteriously, in the same way as Jesus transfigured on the mountain did not look like the Jesus that they had drank and slept with in three years of ministry. And so Jesus fed them. And this was now the third time. And then Peter and Jesus went for a walk to have a little private chat. We know they were having a walk because it was a little later on that Peter looked round and saw that John was following them, so they must have been going somewhere for him to be following them, right? A walk along the shore after breakfast. Let me just read for you from John's account of Peter's denial. Simon Peter and another disciple—it's always John when John says that—were following Jesus. Because this disciple, John, was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside, outside of the door. Jesus and John go into the high priest's courtyard, and Peter's left outside because he's unknown to the high priest. The other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and said, It's okay, he's with me. And he brought Peter in. And the girl on the gate doing security said, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. Now just think about it. John's known to the high priest, which is how he got in, and he went in with Jesus. And it's only because John puts a word in for Peter that Peter gets past this girl at the gate. So I would have thought (laughs) that it was pretty much a done deal that Peter was one of these disciples to have this chain of connection. And yet, still, he replied, in face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials in the courtyard of the high priest's palace stood around a fire they'd made to keep warm. And Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And then a little later on it says, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, these are the servants and the officials, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of Malchus, the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, and in the presence of people who all knew one another, and where Peter and John were the unknown figures, Peter denied Jesus. It wasn't a random crowd. This was a group of people where there were a few outsiders there. And so there was clearly a climate of considerable fear and oppression for Peter in, in a futile gesture to attempt to deny knowing Jesus. So it was a spectacular failure loss of nerve and loss of confidence. For Peter who had said, even if all the others leave you, I never will. And so we come to this reinstatement, where Jesus, who knows and understands the difference between what we say and profess within these walls when we sing songs and pray prayers and sometimes recite the Apostles' Creed And sometimes we stand at the front and make pledges and vows and promises, and then we go out and we have to see the extent to which our words out there and our work out there and our living out there matches up to the words we've said with boldness and confidence in the safety of the Christian community and within these walls. And every one of us fails at some point or at some level. So don't be harsh. On Peter, because we've also stood in that crowd where it's been obvious, or perhaps where it should have been more obvious and yet somehow still have denied them. One of the most galling moments that stands out in my life was when I, as a backslidden Christian, was challenged by a friend who was not a Christian at all. And we ended up having a discussion about faith and religion and all sorts, and I was rather punily and rather pathetically trying to defend my core Christian convictions, even though there was nothing about my life or lifestyle that was backing it up at that time. And Richard, my friend, turned on me and said, I don't know how you can say you believe what you believe and live the way you do. stop talking at that point. And when he'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and every year when we do this bit, I go Greek on you, and it needs to happen. Different people take different points of view, but I am resolved on this matter that the words matter. <laughs> I know some people think it's just a, a different use of vocabulary, but I don't think it is. I think John is deliberately using the words that He uses. What am I talking about? Okay, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love Me more than these? And He uses a Greek word, agapao. And the Greek word agapao means uh, to love with your will and your intent, to pledge your lot and your all, to say as Peter had already said, I will be with you always. I will not desert you, though the others will. It's a bold statement of loving devotion. It's a noble love. And Peter, answering, says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses another word for love, which is the Greek word phileo, which is a word of affection and connection and relationship. Phileo is the word that binds people together, not in noble gestures, but just in human relationship and affectionate connection. And so Jesus says, do you love me with this high and true and noble love? And Peter says, I love you with the affection of a good friend, a close brother. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agapise me. Do you love me? And again, the second time, he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the word for affection. And the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this third time Jesus says, phileis me, do you hold me in affection? He takes Peter's word and uses it back on him. It's as if Jesus gives up. <laughs> on trying to get Peter to make, again, this bold declaration that he had made once before and so spectacularly failed to follow through. And so Jesus meets him where he is because that's what Jesus does. And it says that Peter was hurt because the third time Jesus said, "'Felace me.'" Because twice by now, Peter's already said, Lord, I love you. Phileo, I love you. And so Jesus the third time says, Do you love me? Do you love me? I suppose I could just stop there and leave you with those questions and invite you to imagine while I would retreat to my chair and imagine Jesus looking me in the eye and saying, Alistair, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? It said, do you love me more than these, by the way? And the word allows for more than these, allows for at least three possibilities. And those three possibilities are where Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me more than these others? Love me. Because once you said you did, you would. Even if all else desert you, I never will. Do you love me more than these others do? It can just as equally mean, do you love me more than these boats and nets and fish and family and village communities? Do you love me more than these that you've come back to? Do you love me more than these to honor and follow the call I have upon your life? Or have you just come back because you actually love these things more? Do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Which is your community? And we don't know which of these Jesus meant. And three times Jesus charged Peter to feed his lambs and take care of his sheep and feed his sheep and if I'm going to argue that the words matter between the different kinds of love, then there has to be a difference, right, between lambs and sheep. But I haven't worked out what it is. <laughs> Except that Jesus was calling Peter to a ministry of compassion and service, of feeding and leadership and protection. And then he concludes his charge to Peter, saying, When you were younger, you dressed yourself, and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. The NIV, which is the version we read here, is very modest in this passage. You know, there's that little bit where they're in the boat— and it says, when Peter heard Jesus say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, and it says, for he had taken it off. Actually, what the Greek said, says is, for he was naked. <laughs> he was undressed. Gumnos is the Greek word, which is the state that athletes in the gym and Greek athletics used to take part. Now, he probably had a little loincloth or something for modesty, Hebrew religion would require that. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, as you just did a little while ago in the boat, and you went where you wanted because you heard my voice. But when you're older, and maybe this is the (laughs) illusion, maybe this sparked a memory as Peter was in the high priest's courtyard. Someone else will dress you as they had dressed Jesus in a robe and a crown of thorns and hailed him king and mocked him and humiliated him. They dressed him all right. And they led him where he did not want to go. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, but not your will, but mine be done. And so just as Peter had known the freedom to dress himself in a boat and leap out of it in pursuit of his Lord and declare again his love for Jesus, Jesus warned him, again, of the cost of saying yes. Because just as Jesus had been dressed and led where He did not want to go, so Peter too. And history and tradition tell us that Peter died upside down on a saltire cross because he did not consider himself worthy to die the same type of crucifixion as Jesus did. And so, in beautiful simplicity… Jesus finds them when they're tempted to go back to when life seemed easier, reminds them that He's able to provide for them and for their families, and renews His calling on their lives, but a calling that will not be without risk or cost. And in that calling, charges Peter to consider more carefully his brash assertions of undying love with the benefit of a little experience. And as you and I hear Jesus ask that question anew of us, we have the experience both of His sustaining power and our, pro- our own propensity for failure and for falling short. And fundamentally, underneath all of this, as Peter once said to Jesus, go away from me, I am a sinful man. Jesus wouldn't. And as Simon Peter perhaps felt inside that same sting of his own sinfulness, Jesus wouldn't, but charged him and called him up and back to re-embrace his calling and his cross and to seize anew the ministry and the mission that Jesus had given him. And Peter would do it not because Peter was bold and brash and self-confident, but Peter would do it because Jesus had called him, and he who calls is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, we sincerely thank you for Simon Peter. We thank you for his raw honesty, for the recognizable mix of bold determination and self-confidence with the reality of crushing failure. And we recognize and hear in your new call to Him, a reminder of your call to us, afresh each day, but sometimes at seasons, you call us again, call us back to our first calling, and call us into its next chapter and expression, and ask us if we love you, and what that means, and tell us that saying yes to you is a privilege and a risk, but ultimately a profound and incredible blessing of an invitation to journey with you on an exciting adventure, the like of which we will find in no other way in life. So we thank you for your calling, and we pray that you help us as we measure our response to you, not just to make bold statements within these walls, but to walk them out on the other side of the doors. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.